This episode is dedicated to Roxanne Gay, who taught us to find joy in the darkness. Hey, Karina, do you want to hear an interesting new fact about sloths? Impossible, Cassie. I know all there is to know about sloths. They spend their whole lives eating and sleeping, and that's living the dream in my book. I bet you don't know this fact. Fine, surprise me. Sloths are surprisingly fast and skilled swimmers. They can move three times faster in water than they ever can on land. Suddenly, I love them even more. Where can I possibly learn more exciting and interesting facts about sloths? Well, we did do an entire episode on sloths for CritterCast. Right! CritterCast, our comedic animal-themed podcast. It's the show where we talk about all kinds of animals and why we love them. We upload new episodes twice a month on every second and fourth Sunday. Just in time for your Monday morning commute. You can find CritterCast on iTunes, Spotify, and many other podcast streaming apps. Plus, check out our website, CritterCastPodcast.com, for links to all of our social media and for more fun facts and adorable photos of critters big and small. CritterCast Podcast. And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. Hello! Today, we are talking about something a little bit different than what we've been doing for the past six weeks. We're talking about Difficult Women by Roxane Gay. Specifically, today, we're going to be talking about the short story Noble Things from this collection. Harmony and I have both read this entire collection, both really enjoyed it. It was very, very thought-provoking, as well as being extremely sad and emotional in lots of ways. So we decided that as we're kind of bridging into kind of the spoopy season, that we would each kind of talk about our favorite short story from this collection as kind of mini podcast episodes. So here we are. Noble Things is, I don't know if it's my favorite story from Difficult Woman. It's kind of hard to pick a favorite, but it's one that I felt had so much weight to it that it was really cool to talk about. So I guess this week is about, it's about that. It's about Noble Things. Wow. Wow. You have anything you want to add to that, Harmony? It was not my favorite story. Not because it wasn't well written, but because the protagonists are really frustrating. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was my favorite because I thought it was the most thought-provoking, and I think it was also one of my favorites because I found it to be really scary in a way that I didn't find some of the other stories, which, like, is totally a personal thing, but... I get that. I understand that. I think for me, it was less thought-provoking. However, I recognize... So, the author of this short story collection is Roxane Gay, and she is a Black woman. And so, like, I think it's tremendous that she had the feet to go through a story like this. Because, I don't know, Maggie, do you want to give a summary? Noble, I mean, in, like, a sentence, essentially, because, you know, we are dealing with a short story. There isn't a ton of plot here. Um, Noble Things is about what happens after the Second Civil War in the United States, or what used to be the United States. 
that separates the South and a couple other parts of the country from the rest of the Union, which is known as the Federation, for, you know, <laughs> reasons of white supremacy, which is really danced around in this story. It's very rarely, I think it's only once really kind of like explicitly stated. Kind of. And it's not even that explicit. It's just kind of like yeah. mentioned. And also for like, to go back to what is viewed in this story as being more quote unquote traditional values. So we yes. follow this couple, um, Parker Coles Johnson, the sixth, who is the son of Parker Coles Johnson, the fifth and his wife, Anna, as they're living in this new society that neither of them really agree with, but that they kind of helped create and sort of their decision about whether to leave. Yeah. Or at least, yeah, are complacent in. Well, I think that you could say, yeah, I mean, I think that Parker, uh, I like if we're going to just dive in, like Parker, I think definitely you could say has a hand in creating it, right? Like he's the son of essentially the general hero, not general with a small g, like general as in that was his army title of this entire war. And he was also a soldier and he also like, actively participated in it and part of one of the interesting things that i think we're gonna cover in this episode is the idea of family ties and our tie and what we owe to our ancestors and things like that because parker doesn't actually agree the younger parker doesn't actually agree with anything that's happening he feels like he has to do all of this in order to like appease all of this family tie and appease his father and things like that so like choice is a weird sort of theme in this short story let's see does the page so it starts it starts 215 if you're reading it from here yeah okay yeah and you wanted to talk about selfishness i think that something that's interesting in this story which is brought up at the beginning and comes through a couple of other times is the idea of little comforts so to speak like the story begins with Parker saying that he like misses fast food. He misses all of these like small things from the old society, from the old United States. And that struck me as interesting for a couple of reasons. First, because like in a society that is, you know, kind of designed to celebrate white people, essentially, and specifically white men, it's like, kind of selfish you know to just be like the only things I miss about the way things were before are you know like comfort foods and little comforts and things like that but I think that there's also part of the conversations they have here that are metaphors for the larger things that Parker doesn't like about this society and wishes like were different and things like that in that he like slowly admits to himself as we see the story progress if that makes sense yeah i mean he in in the story as the story progresses he kind of implies that he isn't a racist in the way that we think of racism right he's at a bar and his friends are saying like hateful things and when there's an implication that a black man maybe like obama (laughs) won the presidency of the united states and that's what caused the civil war And when he's explaining that to his son, he says that the Second Civil War started because small-minded men could not handle who was president. I just, yeah, I don't know. I'm just so angry. I'm not angry at Roxane Gay, obviously. It just, like, 
this story does a really good job of trying to make the people seem sympathetic. And as a white person who was born kind of in the South, not that I really have that experience, it just makes me so angry. Parker makes me so angry. And he's like kind of sexist too, but he like pretends like he's not. And ah, it makes me so angry. Yeah, Parker. (laughs) That's part of the reason I liked this story though, was because I thought that Parker was infuriating and i also think that roxanne gay did a really good job in like making them kind of sympathetic yeah not in the sense that you like excuse their actions but you see the logic they were using at the very least and i think also you feel more sympathy for anna although i think that there's a but that also makes me so angry but i think that there's also a different line with anna because So we find out pretty quickly about Anna that she's, like, one of the most outspoken women. She was, like, a really outspoken woman before all of this started. But, like, now that, like, they're in this new South with all of these new rules, they're called the austerity rules, the austerity laws. She is still, she is now probably the most outspoken woman for what she believes in and things like that. And even still, why did she decide to stay, right? Like... Because they say her entire family leaves. So on page 217, we see, I think, I'm going to read this whole paragraph. I think there there are two kind of interesting things happening here that go through the entire story. The Johnson family, they were Southerners through and through. His great-great-great one or another granddaddy fought in the first civil war, as did lots of other kin. After the South fell, they persevered, prospered in tobacco farming, and would have kept on prospering were it not for the changes no one saw coming. Anna came from a long line of Southerners, too, but she did not hold the same charity toward her ancestry. After the border fence was erected along the Mason-Dixon, most of Anna's family fled north. Too many of them loved people with brown skin and had borne children with brown skin to abide the changes coming. Article 2, our union can be strong only if the provenance of her people can be proved. Anna's family left three months after Anna and Parker met, and now, nearly a decade past that, she misses the people whose blood she shared, the roundness of their voices, her mother's hands. So maybe there are like three separate interesting things happening here. The first is we see the beginning of like this whole family ties complication thing, which haunts Parker throughout this entire story. The second is that we see that Anna's family is different from this, right? Like Anna has totally different feelings toward family and things like that. And the third thing is that we get the implication that Anna abandoned or Anna didn't go with her family and to a certain extent maybe didn't go with what she believed in to stay with a dude she had known for three months. Yeah, which is, I don't blame her. Well, I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's just so hard for me. This book did come out, it looks like I checked, after Trump became president. I don't know when she was writing this. But it's just so hard to live in the society that we're living in and have any sort of sympathy for white supremacy. But we're also saying this is to Northerners, right? Like, we're not, we're not in this value. Like, we're not instilled with the same values that are very prevalent in this book. Now, Maggie, you read, have you read one of Roxanne Gay's biographies? Because I haven't. Yeah, I've read Hunger by her. Also a great book. Is she from the South? 
Yes, I want to say so. Okay. Mm, so... Maybe not. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm sorry. Maggie's trying. Yeah, uh, Google, help me. Uh... At least I did not grow up at all in a traditional environment. And so for me, a lot of the traditional stuff stands out and seems very archaic and very weird. But I do think Gay is trying to get at, like, she, she's putting you there, putting you there in an environment that is traditional and showing you the way that these things work. And another part, like, I love this book, but it relies a lot, not all the time, but it relies a lot on kind of stereotypical gender roles for cis relationships. And that's especially present in this short story, even though Anna is kind of seen as like this badass, almost feminist. To me, she is like played by Reese Witherspoon in my headcanon. <laughs> She's this feisty Southern lady. And I think, I don't know, it's just so hard. It's so hard to live in this era and read a story like this. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just so done with sympathy. <laughs> Wikipedia tells me she was born in Nebraska. Uh, okay. But that's still, like, that's a, it's not the South, but that's a, um, a rural area. So there are probably, and it's not a coastal city, because, like, I've lived in mostly rural areas. I think Maggie probably has, too. But I've also had the benefit of being on the coast, and I think Maggie also has, too. Because Connecticut is a coastal state. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it is really hard to read. That's part of the reason I wanted to talk about it, right? Like, I think that part of the thing that makes this book and a lot of Gay's other work really compelling is that she's not afraid to write really difficult things to read. Although I do agree with you that, like, a lot of the stereotypes and the, like, there's very stereotypical gender, like, cis-het gender roles being played with in this, and a lot of the stories in this book, if if not all of them. I think that there's a couple that, yeah. like, move outside of that for sure. But there's definitely some at least lesbian relationships that are explored, or at least uh, woman loving yeah. women. It's not always sometimes but it's by relationships. I think that that's kind of on purpose because I think it, it it exploits, especially in this story, a lot of the ways in which like those things and those not those things, but like those stereotypes and stuff are are harmful and dangerous. I think one of the things I found really powerful about this story actually kind of comes at the beginning and makes it less sympathetic. It's on page 216 and Parker is talking about the fact that he's like still a kind-hearted person and and the fact that like even though he's done bad things and I think by proxy to that like believed in bad things, he still views himself as being a good person. And I think that you see a lot of the ways in which he wants to believe that he is less a product of this society than he is. Because we see, I think especially in his treatment of Anna, the ways in which he kind of, he is sexist, right? Like, even though he doesn't think he is, because he married this he describes her as being a big woman, not necessarily in the fact that she is, like, physically large, but that she's got a big presence in the room and she uses her voice and things like that. And he didn't want a quote-unquote small woman who would be just, like, meek and submissive, which, I mean, that whole conversation totally misses the point about what those women probably go through being married to his father and brothers to kind of have... To be 
fair to interject, like, he says that he saw them grow smaller. So he does seem to recognize that it's his father's looming presence that affects his mother. Yeah, for sure. But I think, like, all, like, everything in this book, he addresses it obliquely. Or everything in this story, he addresses it obliquely, right? Like, the way he talks about the right, the white supremacy passage that we just read is addressed obliquely and things like that. Like, a lot of this book, or a lot of the story, I keep saying book, it's, like, such a densely packed short story, it kind of feels like a book to a certain extent. I think that there's lots of things in here where it's, like, him having to come to term like we're starting to see him come to terms with these things that he's only ever addressed obliquely and i think that one of the reasons that it becomes less sympathetic is because we don't actually get to see him become like a a more enlightened person right like we're just seeing the like tip of the iceberg with it and i also think that there's a criticism when she when she talks about him being a kind-hearted person of the idea that he just he can't see himself accurately like he's so steeped in these you know like austere laws and these values that have been instilled with him for generations like he can't see himself objectively like he can't remove himself from that which i think is an a really like important part of this story that makes sense yeah yeah Huh. So that is important. You said that this was on 216. Was there a specific passage that you were referring to? Yeah, it's right at the top. He, I don't necessarily, it's not long enough to really quote the whole thing, but he's talking about the fact that he, you know, sometimes he's driving through the town at night and he sees, he calls them vagrants or malcontents who are like making their way north, trying to escape the south. And that and like he sees that and then he immediately says that he's still kind-hearted despite the fact that he had he was kind-hearted despite the things he had done so he wondered how those folks survived like right 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 okay so do you want to talk a little bit like getting off of my angry horse how i don't know if it's interesting but like in gay's world right in this in this story when, if the south if the south secedes, it becomes this like really poor, archaic place. Do you want to talk a little bit about the archaicness or the poverty? Is it because it's not producing anything? Do we think that that would be true in this era? I know that that's true after the first civil war. Um, but have we evolved at all in terms of economics? I think that an important part of what is stated at least in one sentence is that they they're having trouble getting other like getting imports and exports out i'm assuming for moral reasons although like everything else in the story it's never really explicitly stated so i think like i could see that potentially being a problem if something like this were to actually happen and this is like the reasons why you know like but i think that something that plays off of that what you're talking about is the fact that within this society that has become even you know more impoverished and things like that like we're looking at two main characters who have a lot of relative privilege within that um because again you know parker is the son of the great general and like he was in the war and stuff so like he has a good home and a warm bed and his loving wife and all of that and like they're able to because of their position in society even among like what is probably now a largely white population like they they even have privilege within that strata like they have more class privilege still yeah to the point where like 
makeup is like really frowned upon because of the fact that like they need so many other resources, but Anna can wear it. Or the fact that Anna cannot go to church because of Parker's position in the society and she's just viewed as being kind of eccentric for it. Like she's viewed as being eccentric for somebody who like speaks her mind and stuff like that. And even uh, to get further into the story, like they're privileged because they were able to send their only child out. And now he lives in the Federation with his grandparents, uh, specifically because Anna says she doesn't want him to learn like the nonsense essentially that was going to be put into his mind. She said he was too smart for that. So like, I think that's something I find even more, I mean, detestable. Yes. But like it adds another layer of nuance to this conversation is that like in the society, like this new South that gay has created, we're still looking at like the top of the top, right? Like there's probably not a ton of other people who are like higher in society than they are. So, like, even within that, you know, like, we're looking at two people who don't really recognize their privilege, even in that way, even in this new society, you know? Like, Anna takes advantage of it in some ways, in, like, moments of protest and things like that, but, like, we never really see them acknowledge the fact, besides this one very small moment on page 216, that, like, there are so many other people who couldn't be able, who, like, wouldn't be able to make the choice to leave, you know? Yeah, Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't pick up reading it as much on the fact that, yeah, there are people who are lower class classes than them, and that class is a big part of this story and why they're able to even have these beliefs. I also, kind of unrelated to that, but I want to go back real quickly. You mentioned how they sent their son away. I think it was also in part for his safety because he was asking too many questions. And in this society, even though... Anna apparently is allowed to speak up. It you're not really allowed to question that much. And it's also interesting because um going back into another thing you said, in in this society, right, in order for the civil war to have happened, women had to give up their rights. And like the the way that they fall in love, Anna and Parker, is because Anna is insisting on talking as a single woman at a town meeting. And for me, that's just so, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to pretend that I'm like super knowledgeable about history in any sense, but from what little I do know, white women have been subjecting themselves to white patriarchy in order to condemn black people for forever. And I just, that it, uh-huh. And Anna says that she's not doing that, but she totally is because she stayed. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. I, I'm being mad now. No, no, no. I also found that scene frustrating for that reason. And also because it paints Parker as being kind of like, uh, not like a hero. A hero is a big word, right? But like Anna says it and then everyone looks to Parker to like see whether or not it's going to be true or not. And yeah. he And he says... A woman has the same right to speak as any man here, no matter how she is attached or not. There are some things that we cannot and should not change. He was scared to say that, first of all. It says afterwards that his heart was beating really fast. But I think what frustrated me even more was that it was all, like, this was when they first met. It was really tied into his attraction to her. And, Mm -hmm. like, it really, like, that 
part of it really colored whether or not he would have actually said anything if somebody who he wasn't attracted to had spoken up, you know? <laughs> and yeah, this is a frustrating story. It's like really, it's really angering, but I think that's what makes it good, you yeah. know? No, I agree. I agree. Do, do you want to talk about anything else kind of relating to any of those points? Yes, but they relate to later in the story. So let's maybe keep going for a little bit now, because we've jumped around a little bit at the beginning of the story. And I think that lots of things that make this story cool is the fact that Gay really kind of has a solid handful of themes that she keeps sort of like delving deeper and deeper and deeper into as the story goes on. I am interested into the whole notion that alcohol is a necessity. Yes! I wrote that down too, I think. I was also interested about that. I think it's because it's the South and because it's this really archaic, old-timey, patriarchal world. And also, I think that's interesting because at the beginning of the suffragette movement, a lot of the suffragettes became suffragettes in favor of prohibition, right? Like, it was women fighting to have their men stop wasting all of their alcohol, all their money on alcohol and then coming home and beating them. Yeah. So I think it's just, to me, it just seems like a relic of this old-timey society, but also it's like a very... It's a very white, masculine, patriarchal sort of necessity. I totally agree. I also wonder, though, if there is a level of uh, even more sinister things happening there. You know, like the new government deciding alcohol is okay because alcohol can be used as escapism. And if you're drunk all the time, you're not questioning what's happening, right? Like, we only really see, like, semi, at least semi-responsible drinking in this section of the book. Or, like, in this short story. I keep saying in this section of the book. That's not correct. In this short story, we only see semi-responsible drinking. But, like, that was something that really struck me as, like, a way to keep people kind of complacent, right? I think also in the idea coming, like, circling all the way back to little comforts, right? Like, if we're taking away fast food, if we're taking away so many other little comforts that people expect of their day-to-day lives. Like, if you don't give people a bone, even if they agree with you morally, if you're changing their everyday lives that much, they're not going to agree with you anymore, right? Like, you need to be able to keep something, I think, the same. And I think that alcohol is kind of a sinister one to keep the same. That's true. I think... Yeah, I mean, this is like, this is the real world dystopian society that we're living in, right? Get drunk so that you won't think about your problems. I know most, I, though I am not in like a traditionally uh, blue collar field, we make blue collar money. And that is a very, like, we all drink our sorrows away. That's like a very traditional, like, working man's sort of thing to do. I want to go back to the fast food question because... Not having a ton of experience with the South, right? I think that would also be an easy thing for complacency. I guess maybe just because it's hard to import would be why they would take it away. But I also wondered if there was some sort of like, or some sort of like fascist sort of thing. From what I understood reading it, it was, it was, it it had more to do with trade and like getting things in rather than like it being necessarily. It was considered to be unseemly buying food at a restaurant that one could prepare at home. So it was written in Article 3, our union can only be strong if we forgo all that is wasteful. 
that's on the very first page of the book. Okay. So I think I think that yes, potentially, but I think that probably it has something more to do with like the resource war yeah. and things like that. Like, but also like you need to prepare your food at home. That's kind of a like that's implying that both parties aren't working. That's pre- implying some sort of yeah. like. 50s era traditional household where everyone has a little wife at home change the yeah. stove for <laughs> sure i just i think that just really struck me because like of all the things that you could miss about the old world like it's just so selfish to open up with like those little comforts you know i didn't see it as selfishness as much um i saw it more as from what little I do know about the South, right? And I'm like, I'm not from the real South. I'm from Virginia, which is kind of the fake South in a lot of ways. Um, there are a lot of fast food restaurants there. And like, things like fast food really are a necessity. I don't know. Do you think that like Gay was trying to say that he was selfish for missing fast food or that, because it did bother me that like he wanted to go North for fast food, right? It wasn't like, because your society is problematic. But I didn't blame him for missing fast food. I mean, sometimes you just, like, you need some chicken nuggets. I don't know. No, I, I I don't mean selfish in, like, a condemning, like, terrible way. I think that when things change a lot and really drastically and in ways that Parker at least says he didn't anticipate, at the end of the story, he tries to, like, go to Anna and be like, I never thought it'd be like this, right? Like, I didn't think it'd go this far. I think that when your life changed a lot, it's hard to think about the magnitude of all of the things that are missing, so you cling to those little things. But I also think that there is kind of a juxtaposition between, like, how it's kind of... I hesitate to use the word understandable because I don't really want to sympathize with Parker, but, like, if my life, for totally different reasons, completely changed and all of a sudden we're in a dystopian nightmare, like, I'd probably miss fast food, too, you know? Like, give me my McDonald's. So, like, I get it, but then there's also, like, there's so many people, as we see throughout the story, with such bigger problems that it's, like, the perspective here. But then also, you know, we find out that he misses his son and stuff, and, like, I think that sometimes there's also just the idea that, like, the things that are really bothering you are too big to, like, actually mentally deal with, and you have to cling on to those little kind of selfish things. That makes sense. I think, though, to a certain extent, because I wasn't really understanding your reading about selfishness before, um, but yeah, he is kind of selfish, even in like wanting to go because he misses his son. Like the one inkling we get of him standing up to his father is the idea that he could go. And that is because he misses his son. It's not for any sort of larger right or wrong reason, which is. I I think they try to sort of imply that he thinks it's for like a larger more important reason but yeah it's really just because he misses his son which is understandable like i'm not going to fault people for that but yeah they're they are complacent and he is a part of creating this like evil dystopian world ah yeah it's like really uh it's very it's frustrating i think that another aspect of the story that we haven't really dove into a ton yet is we talked a little bit about like Parker's ties to his family and stuff and how he feels this like really like the weight of his ancestors kind of bearing down on him to uphold these beliefs but this story is also largely about like a crumbling marriage you know and a crumbling marriage that Parker 
I think I think it's at least fair to say that he's he's trying he's trying at least decently hard to save it. Like he is clearly unhappy that Anna is unhappy. He's just kind of unwilling for a while to do what would like make her happy. And like the dynamic of marriage in here is very interesting. And I think for me that like point starts on page 219. Parker is telling her that like they have to go to his father's house that night because they have to go to like dinner or whatever. It's just like a thing that they do. She's pissed off at him already. Like they're already fighting. And she goes, I'm not thrilled about dinner at your father's tonight. All the ceremony and for what? He sighed, nodded. Parker gently rubbed at the thick scar on the left side of his chest, an ugly circle of dead tissue. But you'll come? Anna set her eyeliner pencil, contraband from her family in the north, on the lip of the sink. Have I ever not stood by you? She scowled, shook her head at his reflection, and stalked out of the bathroom. That line, have I ever not stood by you, like, really stuck with me. And I think that it explains not justifies, but, like, explains a lot of her actions throughout the rest of the story. Like, in a lot of ways for this society, she is kind of a progressive woman, you know, for, like, this society. But at the end of the day, like, she is gonna do what her husband wants her to. And that's pervasive throughout this entire story. I think it's implied, potentially, it's it could be part of the reason why she stays in the first place. We see it in their sexual relationship later in the story. And we see it at the very end of the story, which we'll get into a little bit later. But she's trying, she's unsure if Parker is going to actually leave. So she's trying to work up the courage to leave him. And it takes her a really, like, I don't want to say a long time because, like, it's a short paragraph. But you can tell that it, like, agonizes her to think about breaking that vow, to think about not standing by him, you know? Like, that's a tension in their marriage that's present through the entire short story that I found really interesting. So, I wonder, too, because I'm imagining you might have different perspectives on this than I do, right? As someone, as I said before, and this is something I want to talk about in future books that we're going to be reading, I did not have a traditional background at all. And to me, like, the idea of a woman standing by her man, even if he is complacent in some sort of atrocity, really grinds my gears. But Anna grew up in the South, and maybe it is reasonable to expect in the modern era that it would be very ingrained into her that, like, she has to play the white role. And I, I'm just curious, like, you are a married woman who comes from a more traditional background in some ways than I do, and I know that that doesn't completely shape your views, but, like, what do you think about that? Sorry. A lot of things. No, no, no. It's, it's like, a really good question. I don't know. I think a lot of things about it. Like, I think it's, like, really frustrating as well. Like, it, it makes me angry, too. But I also think that, like, in Anna's position, you know... We're also seeing a woman who doesn't seem to be working, who is, like, completely dependent on her husband for, like, staying alive (laughs) and things like that, that I think colors it slightly differently. I don't know. I think it's really frustrating. Part of the reason I think that I was so intrigued by this is because, like you were saying, like, I am a married person and, like, it made me reflect, not that I would, you know, ever be down for the second civil war like I, I i wouldn't but like it, it like it like it does make you reflect on like your own relationships like with the person that you've signed up for right like 
what would I be okay? Like, what, where, where is my personal line? You know, like, I'd like to think it'd be before this, but like, if DD was my sole provider, if I had nowhere to go, if I had no way to make a living for myself, does that line change? Is it selfish for it to change? Probably. But like, if you're not, you know, like, I don't know. It just raised a lot of questions for me that like, I don't have good answers to. I'm still thinking about them. She does have support and family though in the North. So I, I read it more as less of like a resource issue and more of like, it is intrinsically, you know, ingrained in her that she is a wife and she can't break this vow. And she does love her husband. Like, that's okay. We all love people who, you know, are sometimes kind of assholes, but I probably would not. I don't know, though. Like, I once dated a libertarian. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that I... was a time I, for all of us. <laughs> I probably wouldn't marry a man who was a part of the Second Civil War, but who knows? Love is weird. Yeah, like, I just... I, honestly, for me, something I found even more like intriguing about that is the fact that she stays with him but sends her son away yeah like that for me was where it was really like oh you know because like in the society i think we should stop blaming the south to be clear in this in this whole society it's not just like the southern portions of the state there's also a huge swath of we love you, Southern listeners. We're sorry. There's also, but there's also a huge swath of the West and the Midwest who are part of it. It's essentially like the Northern states from the Civil War, a large part of the Western coast, like Hawaii, Alaska, I think. Like the nation isn't, di- like the nation is really divided in the sense that like it's also ge- like geographically very separated right now. Yeah. Um, it's just that this like section takes place in what we think of as like the the south today and it's also kind of stated that i I don't know if it's explicitly well no i think it is a little bit is it not explicitly stated i don't know if the state is explicitly stated it's not it does say that it takes place in the south i'm just saying like i think we need to zoom back and think of it more as like some really traditional christian ideals because the tradition here is very deeply tied into into religious beliefs it's not explicitly stated that they're Christian beliefs. I think it's heavily implied, though. And, like, those ideas are throughout a, a large portion of our country in every state, no matter where you are right now. So, like, I think, to me, that makes it even, I would say, I guess, stranger. Because in a lot of ways, like, we place motherhood above everything else right like above yeah. in a lot of you know from what i understand of those traditional like ideals right like your bond as a mother to your child comes before everything else and she still chooses to say to stay with her husband instead i think so again not an expert but i once in um college undergrad <laughs> took a class about families uh, from a sociological standpoint and there are different parents techniques but a more traditional parenting technique is that the parents put each other first rather than their children Mm. and it varies obviously because yeah as a woman like you are a mother first that's a thing but I think that in a lot of traditional arenas your husband would trump your children interesting cool I didn't know that you learn something new every day yeah I don't know if I'm wrong correct me you know our email address rebelgirlsbookclub at (laughs) gmail.com yeah I'm, I think that there's also a lot of things that Anna says that part that like are supposed to make Parker think about himself, but don't like, I think that 
even when she says like essentially like do I never not stand by you I feel like that was kind of supposed to be one of those moments where Parker was supposed to like take that back onto himself and be like should I not be like also like standing with her and things like that and he just like misses the point he's not a good listener. No, he's not. Among, he his, likes, among his many other issues. He likes that she's like this feisty big woman, but he doesn't want her to ever like reach anything. And it's also, she sacrificed everything for him. She didn't leave with her family. It's all, and like, it's, ah, I'm sorry. I'm just so, I'm just so grumpy about it. Like he likes that she is willing to speak her mind. And that's a little bit because he does it. And, to get a little bit personal, like, in my partnership, I'm the one that's more likely to speak my mind. And my partner does really enjoy that. But I don't think, I don't know, if he, and there have been instances in which I thought he was too complacent, like, I would tell him and expect him to change and be like, not complacent anymore. Or leave that shit. Yeah. No offense, I love my partner, but God. It's just, this is, like, such a frustrating short story. Yeah. 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 All right, well, <laughs> on that note, Maggie, what else do you want to talk about? Um, we talked about the tie between religion and traditional values already. Um, I think that something that's interesting is that there's lots of ways where it seems that Parker is more dependent on Anna than Anna is on him. Yeah. Not every way, I think, but, like, Parker, especially towards the end of the story where like we're clearly building up to somebody leaving right like depending if it's Anna alone if it's both of them you know kind of remains in the balance until Parker actually does something but like Parker spends a lot of time thinking about all of the ways in which he needs Anna and like a lot of them are pretty sexist right like it's it's a lot about like needing that home support after you're coming back from the war and all of that. And like, he got really heavily injured while he was in the war. And like, that's one of the only moments where we see the tides kind of turn and Anna being like really upset that he's injured because she needs him. And like a lot of the way he thinks about her is just like, he's like desperate to keep her. And it turns him into a really but like he doesn't understand it you know like he's saying all of these things and as the reader you're like this man really needs this woman for whatever reason right like he he loves her like he's willing to throw down for her but Anna doesn't always like Anna and I mean to be fair we see it from Parker's perspective you know maybe if we saw Anna's perspective we'd feel differently about it but like the way Anna behaves like she doesn't need him. Like, she will freeze him out, you know? Like, she's willing to leave him by herself at the end of the at the end of the short story. So, like, the the need levels are different here. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, it wasn't what I was would like expect from a marriage, I guess, in this like context. Because like even within like, the the male-to-male relationships here, like, Parker's relationship with his father. When Parker gets shot is the only time that we see the general, like, really get emotional with Parker, right? And he explains why he named Parker after him, and, like, they have this really deep moment. And it's, like, kind of heartfelt and heartwarming, but it also falls into really, like, traditional, like, kind of toxic masculinity sort of deals, where it's, like, you can only be emotional and vulnerable at, like, the height of heights, you know? And even we see that with Parker and his son, Parker, who they call Seven. 
in that he only gets emotional with him when he's sending him away and like he cries the entire hour on the train and stuff like that so like i feel like when you see those moments you kind of assume that parker doesn't need anna as much as anna would need parker just because that's like the context you're getting set up here with like emotional vulnerability but like in parker's heart of hearts no like he really needs anna to stay yeah i think i didn't read it ever as him i mean throughout the story my initial response of him was like he is weak and anna is at least presented as a strong person and he loves anna because she's presented as a strong person Mm -hmm. so i didn't ever really think that like he didn't need anna like i think he would not be okay if anna left him but i do think the toxic masculinity thing was interesting because you're right he also when he's talking to his son because parker i do think objectively is less toxically masculine than his father is i'm not saying he's a good guy but like he's he's moving in the right direction if we're comparing him to his father I think in all aspects, he's supposed to be portrayed as that, right? Like, generationally, we're moving forward in some aspects, you know? And it's a pretty big jump, too. At least from, like, what we... At least from us getting kind of his perspective. Like, it Mm -hmm. seems like a very big divide between the two of them. But, you know, when he's talking to his son, he won't look his son in the eye when he tells him that he's going to come see him. And that's like an emotional sort of like, but also it could be because he knows he's lying. I don't know. I just read him as like this huge coward, this huge, like kind of sexist coward. Me too. I totally, I totally agree with that reading, but I think that that cowardice is what makes him need Anna so desperately. Yes. No, I agree with that. Especially because like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she to him. I don't know if she would have left him though. I know it says that she's, think she would have left him but i thought kind of like it was open-ended whether or not parker would actually leave it seemed open-ended to me whether or not anna would actually leave i agree because it says on page 233 to like jump a little bit ahead in the plot of the story do you want to read it waiting for parker to return from his run anna stared at the ceiling and said i have been apart from my son for 389 days It was the refrain she offered up every morning as she thought of the last moment she had her child near her hands. She was going to leave soon. She did not want to leave Parker, but she would. She prayed it, would not come to that, but she had been planning and she was ready. All she needed to do was make peace with her heart. That's all I need to do, she whispered into her pillow. Anna rolled onto her side, pulled her knees into her chest. She thought of the suitcases hidden in the back of her closet, filled with the things she had convinced herself she needed. Anna kept repeating, I am not running away. She said it until the inside of her mouth was dry and her teeth were dry and it hurt to say the words. Yeah, I think you're right in that it does. It is a little bit open-ended, right, because she still needs to make peace with her heart. I think that this part is also interesting because it's only the second time where we really see Anna, like, needing her husband in kind of that same way right like the first time is when he's shot and she's like devastated and here we see that leaving her leaving him would really hurt her but she's also more ready than he is right like she's packed she's more certain in this part than parker was even when he started talking to his father and and told him he was gonna leave right like even in the point where like i don't like the way this is said but i do think it's kind of interesting on page 231 it says uh the 
Parker's having a conversation with the general about the fact that he's leaving. And he goes, uh, the general says, I'm not interested in any conversation you want to have at this time of day skulking over here in the dark. I'm not skulking, Parker said evenly. Anna, the general pounded his fist on the table, sending the lid off the sugar jar followed by a thin trail of sugar. Parker began tracing, enjoying the grip beneath his fingers. Don't you come to me with that woman's name the first thing out of your mouth. Speak for yourself. She can certainly speak for herself. And I don't like the way that's said because it's like derogatory, but I do think the fact that Parker uses Anna as this like shield, like I'm doing this because of what it's what Anna wants, does make it seem more like he's still like he's having this conversation, but like it's it makes him seem like he's still on the fence, right? Like he's putting his wife's needs first. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about why Parker is staying and duty? I don't know if we've really talked about Parker's struggle with his father enough because Parker doesn't necessarily love his dad. It doesn't seem like anyone necessarily loves his dad, except for maybe his mother who Parker thinks has withered away and who apparently at Parker and Anna's wedding smiled all night and laughed because the general acknowledged how long they had been married. It says something about her like beaming under his attention yeah which is really sad um yeah and the only person who ever calls the general by his actual name is anna when she's telling him before he goes to the war that he better bring like her husband back in good shape yeah and he like seems respectful about that he doesn't but i think it's partially because he doesn't know how to respond right like he's so blown away by how forward she is that he's like yes ma'am i also again i don't know a lot about the south Southerners, feel free to correct me on any of this, but I think that might be kind of, like, a sassy Southern lady trope a little bit. Especially because, like, she's talking back to him because she just really loves her husband. I think I would go, as somebody who's married to somebody who's in the armed services, I would go even further than that and say that it might be partially that, but that line and that trope is a military spouse thing. Like, you better bring my husband back okay, you know? That I I I think that one goes wider spectrum wise to like military spouse tropes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, their relationship is just like no one actually loves his father, but he's just like so scared of his father and so scared of like the weight and what his father is telling him he has to do and defying his family's expectations. And by the way, when they his father does get emotional with him. What he does is tell him why that he gave um, Parker his name, and he says it's because he looked like he was strong enough to bear it. He was like, "This person, this uh, child, will have the strength to bear my name." Yeah, this boy will be able to carry the weight of my name. Yeah, that's like that's kind of toxically masculine too. I think like it's all it's all about strength. It's not like I just love you, son. Another cool thing, when Parker, before Parker actually tells his dad that he wants to leave and, like, attempts to stand up to him, on page 231, he calls him daddy. He says, we need to talk, daddy. Mm -hmm. And that seemed really out of place for me. And also, like, it was a nice, I don't know, I get in trouble, I mean, also because there's weird sexual connotations, but, like, I call my dad daddy sometimes, and I call my mom mommy. But, like, people don't expect me a very like feminine 
24-year-old woman to be, like, saying those words to my parents. So I feel like that's a very vulnerable and not toxically masculine thing for him to do. I don't know. Yeah, and I think that it ties into the page on the day before. Or the page on the... (laughs) We've been podcasting for a long time now, friends. Long time. Uh, (laughs) The the sentence on the page before where Parker's, like... Or maybe it's, like, earlier on this page where Parker is talking about the fact that he's, like, very familiar with being all of the things that disappoint his father. I, like, it really... That tied in together for me. Like, he's already feeling vulnerable because he's, like... He feels like he's failed his father, even though he's really done everything his father has asked. And also, during these last pages, we finally see him, like, realize and say the fact that, like, he isn't, like, he's done all of this and he doesn't believe in any of it. Like, on page 231, he tells the general, I won't have my boy spending the rest of his life in this, leaving a lie, living a lie I don't believe in. So, like, this is the only moment, like, this was kind of the tip of the iceberg moment I I was kind of talking about earlier, where, like, it's the only time we see Parker say in any means that, like, he's, oh, yeah, but it's, like, the only time we see Parker openly acknowledge the fact that, like, things are actually wrong in their society, and that, like, he doesn't believe in what his father believes in. And, like, that if this was actually supposed to really paint Parker sympathetically, we would see more of that, like, more of him actually, like, owning up to the things he's done wrong and things like that instead of just obliquely. But I also think it's an important moment, right? Like, it's the only time, apparently, in this man's entire life that he's ever stepped up to his father and, like, he tells him he's leaving. I feel like that's an important moment to say that, like, I think they, I think that they will actually go north, you know? Yeah. That's fair. At least he's making steps. Yeah. But I... You're right. Like, they're very, and, like, the him slamming his, in the middle of the argument, like, his fist down on the table and stuff, like, definitely implies at least, like, some level of, like, emotional abuse and things like that, like, or at, at the very least, it's, like, this idea of ruling with an iron fist, right? Like, his father- Oh, you mean the general slamming his fist, yeah. right? Because Parker does that at some point earlier with Anna. He doesn't, he punches a dresser. Yeah. And then proceeds to, like, kind of break her. Yeah, that was a, that, first. that was a weird, that was a very, very, very weird section. Do we want to circle back to that? I think so. I think we need to unpack. I think we need to address it. Like, yes, trigger wording. We're going to talk about sexual assault a little. But yeah, I think we definitely need to impact it, even if we don't know what to make of it. Yeah, because like, it's, it's very strange. Do we have anything else to say about like this relationship with his father, though? I don't think I do. Okay. Do you? No, I don't think I do either. I think it's just, like you were saying, I think it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of the reasons they're in the situation that they're in is because of the general and Parker's relationship. Yes. And that's also like, I don't know how the general was phrased, but it's implied that like, it's a traditional thing, right? Like, he's there because there is this heavy tradition in his family of obligation and needing to, uh, I don't know, be with your family, even if you don't love your family. And it's also very deeply di- tied into the specific land that they're on. Like, they talk lots about the dirt. They talk lots about, like, being raised there. They talk deeply about the fact that during the war, like, blood is spilled on that, like, their family's blood is spilled on that dirt and stuff like that. So, like, it is not just about, like, keeping family connections, but, like, the family connections are deeply tied to place. Hello, you're back. Oh. The doggy is here again. 
She's graced me with her presence. She keeps going in and out of like sitting on the bed with me and not. Um, all right, let's then circle back to talk about this very strange and traumatic scene on page 229. Trigger warning, content warning for like rape and sexual assault. It's not explicit, but it's weird and creepy. It's kind of explicit during the beginning. Like it's the it's a little bit gray because eventually she seems to consent sort of, but we're getting it from his perspective. So And it's also ends up seeming like a weird sort of manipulation thing on both of their parts. Like it's very it's a weird scene. It's a weird scene. And I think part of the reason that it's weird is because they're married. I think that if this was like two people who were at the beginning of a relationship or something and like this is something that happens like it would be even creepier but like there's this weird like i mean this is actually so not to give spoilers for the rest of the book i mean we're not going to read that rest of the book but you definitely should there are other scenes like this in the book in which the male love protagonist is a little bit abusive and the female like kind of enjoys it or is portrayed to enjoy it, at least, yeah. Yes. So, I think that's a trope that exists outside of this book. And maybe there is some truth to it. Like, I don't know. Personally, I am, like, a person that's into BDSM and stuff. But consent is always very key in almost everything I've done physically. So, it's, it is strange to read about this stuff without having any sort of precursor to it. Yeah, I think that, like, it was supposed to come off as, like, kind of hate sex, you know, like, angry sex. I think that's what it was supposed to turn into, at the very least. But, mm-hmm. like, the beginning of it... Uh, I, I'm on the fence about whether or not we should actually read it. I think we should, just to give context. We've given trigger warnings, and we'll give another one now. We're going to read the scene, and it could be upsetting to some listeners. Okay. Do you want to read it? Sure, I can read it. (laughs) In the study, in the quiet of their nearly empty home, and so far from the joy they once shared, Parker reached for his wife and pulled her to the floor. She resisted at first, slapping his hands away, twisting her body beyond his reach, but he said, don't refuse me, and she stilled. Anna gently held Parker's face between her hands, rubbing her thumbs along his cheekbones. I could say the same to you, she said. He undressed her slowly, pulling at each exposed instance of her skin with his teeth, making a claim, leaving a mark. Anna was punishing as she rose to meet her husband, their hip bones crashing together. They wanted to hurt each other as much as they loved each other. That's what they needed and demanded from each other. So, like, first half of that. Second half of that, I think, is at least supposed to turn into just, like, angry we've had a fight sex, you know? Yeah, it's, like, almost supposed to be romantic or, like, sexually arousing, I feel like. Like, the language used to describe it in the second half, I think, is deliberately meant to, like, have some sort of arousal. Like, it seems, which to me implicitly means that, like, it seems consensual at the second half. But the way it started is still not okay. (laughs) No, and I also think this is something that, this is a phrase that Gay uses a lot throughout this entire book, and actually we'll talk about it a little bit next week as well, because it comes up in the second story we talk about, but, like, there's weird sexual, like, connotations to the idea of making a claim, like, from the man to the woman, 
Yeah, that's what I mean when I kind of say that throughout this book there are, because I love this book and I think it does a lot of really good things, but there are some like traditional cisgender stereotypes that go in and are sometimes problematic. And it's weird reading this book because Maggie and I are both like white cis women who happen to be right now in long-term relationships. Maggie's married to white cis men. So, like, we could easily fall into a lot of this. And I feel like it is, for me at least, a lot more relatable. Like, some of the things that Gay talks about that I know are problematic are things that I have felt and that I enjoy. But it's still so hard to read about it because it is inherently problematic. And sometimes there are things that, like, breach, but it feels romantic at the same time. Like, breach are, yeah. Reach consent and stuff, but it's presented as romantic. I think I don't that know, for me, but... depending on the story, because I don't think that this is necessarily true in all of them, but I think that depending on the story, it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable by the fact that, like, these weird problematic things are being portrayed as, like, romantic, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily true for all the stories. I think in this one, it kind of is. <laughs> I don't know if it's true in the one for next week, though. So stay tuned for that. Like, I think that in that one, it, it's almost more problematic because it is actually supposed to be romantic, you know? That one bothers me less, though, because it's, like, it's clearly consensual. Yeah. That's a story and for next week, though. It's stated that it's clearly consensual. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, that's fine. Whatever. Whatever gets you off. Don't force it on other people. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's a very, like, this scene is, like, very strange and very just kind of, like... Not out of place. It's definitely, like, in keeping with the tone and things that are happening in the rest of this story. But, like, it's just very... Those first three sentences are, were like, whoa, you know? Like, now we're in real different territory. Especially because it's one of the only places we actually see him get physical with her. And prior to this, he talks about the fact that he does, like, really kind of respect her boundaries in the sense that, like... She's been pushing him off every night and stuff, and, like, he has, like, not pushed it and things like that. So it's just, like, very, like, you know? I mean, it's different for every couple in terms of, like, what your consent levels are, and I've experienced different things with, like, different couples, but, like, my partner does not, quote-unquote, call me in the middle of the night when he wants to get his rocks off, and I think a lot of people would feel very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. I think that even, like, could breach some sort of consent. Because he talks about that, but he also talks about, like, normally he would paw at her. Yeah, like, it could be something that she is okay with, but because we don't have more context, we just don't know what her consent level is to it. And I do know that, like, that's not something every couple is okay with. For sure. And it's okay if some couples are, but you gotta consent to it. Consent is key. Yeah, it's just, and I think that that's sometimes part of the drawbacks of, like, short stories, is that, like, you're just never gonna get all the context that you need for things like this, you know? I don't know. I don't want to hate on short stories more, though. I really liked this collection of short stories. Oh, I love this collection of short stories. It's It's one of the very few that I actually, like, really enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, I very much enjoyed it. Do we want to talk about anything else now that we've gotten our trigger warning content out of the way? I think the last thing I think that's really important to talk about, and it's something we touched on a little bit earlier, is that in Parker's like moment of 
guilt essentially at the end when they're talking to each other in bed and stuff and uh, even a little bit before then like he talks about the fact that like he never thought it would get to be that way right like he says i never thought it would come to this i never thought it would go this long and anna is essentially like you're an idiot like not in so many words and she says it softer than that but she's just kind of like that's ridiculous and then she says and then he tries to do it again uh and she says uh don't anna anna said sharply pressing two fingers against parker's lips memories aren't going to do us any good we are here now so like he almost tries to use her and not like in not in a bad way for use but like he tries to use this conversation to like absolve himself of sin a little bit because he never thought it would get like this and she doesn't let him she's like no like we like memories don't do anything intentions don't do anything like we're here we're now we have to deal with this you know so like i really thought that that conversation was kind of important a i think to like again kind of highlight a little bit parker's cowardice right like he like he says it in the line about the lie he doesn't believe in but like here's where we really see that like he was kind of just swept up in all of this and didn't have the the balls essentially to leave earlier to use you know kind of heteronormative language in the keeping of this of this story (laughs) but like she doesn't really let him get away with that you know like she's gentler about it than my paraphrasing but like that is what happens here and she's just kind of like nah like we've got to deal with this like these are the decisions that have that have been made and like we've got to go forward with them and i think that if there's one thing i would take away from this story in like the context of now it's that sentiment It doesn't matter what you thought was actually going to happen. It doesn't matter what your intentions were. Like, you have to deal with the consequences of everything in the here and now. You know, like... (laughs) Maybe that will be part of our homework. I think that's really interesting, too, though, because the story that we're going to explore next week is they also have a situation that is you know, seems hopeless and desperate, and the protagonists of that story deal with it way differently than Parker does. They don't try to justify it. They deal with the new reality. Yeah. Which is also interesting because next week's story is also kind of about the decisions of a father affecting a son, but it is in a slightly different context. Um, I will say though, for readers who are curious, uh, in the back of my collection of short stories, it says when everything was initially published, um, because, you know, really? with, yeah, because, you know, with short stories, lots of times they appear in magazines and stuff. And it does say that this story, Noble Things, originally appeared in a slightly different form in a public space issue 21 summer of 2014. So kind of, that's important. you know, at the very, very beginning, probably of like the ramp up of the 2016 elections and things like that. So, like, a very timely story, but I think just, like, important to keep in mind. And, of course, like, I I haven't read the original version of the story, so I don't know what changed. It does say it appeared in a slightly different form and things like that, but just food for thought, you know, something to keep in mind. Yeah. Because I think that part of the thing that, you know, makes this story so frustrating and scary and just like, ah, is the fact that it feels very applicable to lots of things that are, like, happening in 2019, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's slightly different, though, because, like, we had lots yeah, of people sure. opposing our current president, um, but they would not be the ones who are leading the Federation. <laughs> like, to me, yeah. that very much seemed like an 
commentary on the reaction to Obama as president. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting to mention. Next week, the story that we're covering is actually in the collection of these short stories, the one right before it. Harmony, do you want to give a little shout out to that one? Is that the one that you picked? Yes, this is called The Sacrifice of Darkness. And in my version of the book, it ranges from page 189 to 213. Um, It's, for me, wonderful. And I really enjoyed it, and it makes me cry. Um, And I think that it's a lot more hopeful. So we gave you a downer, and now we're going to give you an upper. Yeah, this one is actually like a very beautiful story of of love. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's very pretty. Do you want to talk about open marriage for a second? Oh, we did want to tack on this two-page story for like five minutes. Only because I love it. I guess we can just... Do we want to, like, do you think... We would run into copyright issues if we just read the whole thing? Probably. (laughs) It's not our work. Okay. Anyway, there's a great little story called Open Marriage that I really loved. Um, And it's about two pages. And it's essentially a woman and a man who are married, sitting in a kitchen. And um, the woman, they're fighting about yogurt. And the woman says that the yogurt is not expired. Because of bacteria. Because of bacteria. Because, like, she heard somewhere that yogurt doesn't doesn't expire. So she starts eating it to kind of, like, prove her point and prove that she is always right. And it has expired, by the way. (laughs) She eats the whole thing. She eats the whole thing anyway and, like, makes a lavish thing about it. And as they're doing this, he's like, how would you feel about open marriage, you know? And she's, she thinks about it and she's like, I'm not opening up my end of the marriage. <laughs> you can do that. That's fine. Go ahead. And he's like really hurt by this, by this reaction of hers. Like he was not expecting for her to say yes. He was expecting for her to be offended or something. But she is very confident that A, he's not going to get any girls. And B, that like what she is saying is right. And I just loved it because this, book uh as a book always like is is very prevalent with the cisgender heterosexual stereotypes like this to me was just the perfect example of it and I also felt like very true and very much like a real relationship in a lot of ways where like they're in this like power struggle over this really mundane thing and she just kind of doesn't respect the man and it's awful, but it's also super funny. And I just like, I don't know. Sometimes I just really like misandry, which for people who don't know means like, it's, it's not a real thing, essentially, but it's like the idea that women are, um, superior to men. And it's also kind of funny too, though, because I think it's kind of implied that though the woman is so certain that she's right and that her husband was like a virgin before she met him and that he has no game, and that, like, this is just, like, a little idea he's going to get out of his head. And she's always right. It's kind of implied, I think, a little bit from the yogurt that maybe she's wrong. And that well, I think should... it's heavily implied. Yeah. Or, at the, or at the very least, that, like, she could be wrong, right? Like... Yeah. But, like, she's not always, always right. I don't know. I just thought it was, like, worth a mention. Just because I really loved it and thought it was hilarious. It's a very funny story. It's like two pages of just like quirkiness and like 
I really appreciated the fact of, like, the fact that they're arguing over fucking yogurt, like, and she's got her information from, like, her interpretation of commercials, and, like, it just felt so real. For me, the ending was, like, slightly less real, like, that's not, that's not my, like, relationship sort of dynamic by any means. Where he looks away first, or where, like, she's just kind of, like, no, where she eats the the entire container of yogurt because she's just so hell-bent on being right. Like, that's not me. But, like, that, the whole first page just kind of, like, it was hilarious. Just, yes. like, it's such a funny story. And I would say also that I think it's extra important. There's a couple more funny moments in here, but, like, this book and collection of stories, like, much of Gay's work can be... Heavy. And is like very heavy and very very dark and goes to really dark places which is good i think that they're all really important and realistic and like true to life stories but like it's really nice sometimes to throw in those zingers of just like this is hilarious and like even if you've never had a conversation about like open marriage or, or like something like that like the dynamic in there is just so relatable the power struggle is very relatable we should all try to not have power struggle relationships, but it happens. Human relationships are weird. Don't get abusive. And, and, <laughs> and it also happens. And, and it also happens over a lot of the time. Really mundane shit like that, right? Yeah. Like where you just want to be right. Yeah. To prove that you can. Yeah. yeah. Or because you actually think you're right. Like she. That's I think part of the thing here too is that she she kind of at least actually thinks she's right. The funny part is when she realizes she's wrong and just goes for it anyways. I like that a lot. I think that's not necessarily who I am now, but I have definitely been that person in the past, and it was very relatable. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. Um, do you want to do homework? Yeah. Do you have homework? I have homework. I want to... I think I've done this homework. I think I'm recycling this homework a little bit. But I want to stand up to our current administration in some fashion in a more active way than I've been doing. I kind of use the fact that I'm a journalist as a cop-out a lot. And I try to write things and use that as my form of, I don't know, my form of, like, civil civic disobedience, sort of. You know, I give, like, sometimes to Bernie Sanders and $2 to Elizabeth Warren and I gave to Kristen Gillibrand when she was still in the race. So like, I'm trying a little bit, but I've felt lost since the Trump presidency on like how I can really meaningfully make a difference. Uh And I think that I really need to do some reflecting and some, yeah, I just need to do some reflecting and like carve out time to actually meaningfully make a difference in some sort of political fashion, especially leading up to our presidential election. That's good homework. Yeah, what about I you? like that. I think I need to... Oh, I don't know. I feel like with the story, there's so many places you could go, and I don't want to, like, copy you. No, it's but, fine. Like, we, should all, we should all, like, practice civic disobedience. Hashtag, uh... Thoreau. Um... <laughs> <laughs> hashtag transcendentalism um hashtag Langston. hashtag Langston. <laughs> 
I think that for me, I want to really do some more research about reparations because I know that it's been a huge movement in, uh, obviously for African Americans and Black people in the United States, but I don't actually know who supports it in the presidential election this time around because I know that there are people who do, mm-hmm. and I'd really like to do more research about like what I can do as a white person to make that like a more viable option in this current political climate because I think it needs to happen and I think that stories like this really highlight that so I think that like I guess going slightly more specific about from your goal like I I would specifically like to do more research about what I can do to support reparations for especially um you know like the descendants of 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 enslaved people and things like that it's not I don't think being as talked about in this election cycle but Native American reparations are also a big thing that I think maybe deserves some attention to if you're inclined (laughs) see see okay oh what are you reading maggie the same thing as i was two hours ago uh spoiler alert harmony and i actually managed to uh two podcasts two podcasts podcasts in one day so i'm still reading born by jeff vandermeer and berserk by kentaro miura what am i gonna read next though because honestly it'll probably be like three days from now uh i don't know i don't know i'm maybe my struggle book three by carl ove now scarred but i'm not committed to that i know in um my book club so i hope to read a book called uh gosh it's a book written by Kristen sole who wrote which is let's and feminist which is not a purely witchcraft book by the way you would actually probably really like it and we should probably it's a non-fiction book i think you would like and we should maybe i know I, listeners can't see but maggie's crinkling her nose and when she crinkles her nose it's like adorable but <laughs> she doesn't like nonfiction. It's I, I think it would be interesting to read for the podcast. But anyway, it's a book about uh, essentially the feminist movement and how women have been denigrated throughout the ages. But she's wrote, written a new book that is more witchy and talks about like cat mysticism throughout history. Yeah, That's cool. like the mysticism of cats. And um, that should be coming at me in a few days for my witchcraft book club. So hopefully I'll read that soon. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. All right. Rate and review us on iTunes, please. Yeah. <laughs> nice you reviews. Do that. <laughs> and right. follow us on Instagram. I work really hard on our Instagram. God damn it. That's true. She takes really artsy photos. So, like, follow us. Uh, okay. Is that it? I think that's it. All Goodbye, right. friends. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh,